0: Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moore's Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's revealed truth. Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 1. I'm going to pick up on a sermon we got halfway through a couple of 3 weeks ago, I guess it was now somewhere in that neighborhood. Um I find this interesting. I didn't realize until I backed back up and started looking at these notes uh, last night, trying to decide if this is where God would have us go to finish. Sermon was preached on nine nine, which is the Sunday before uh, Hurricane Florence. I actually started this uh, particular message that Sunday. Didn't realize until I picked up the notes last night just to look over again and make sure that was what God would have me do to finish this message that we started then. And I happened to glance at the first page as I stacked my notes upside down as I preach and the, the last one I the first one I preach is on the bottom. So I, I went back and, and unstacked them and put the first page on on top as I was looking through those. And I happened to look at the top of the title. And the title of the sermon that we started that Sunday morning was God Has a Plan. It's kind of an odd message to start the day before or a couple of days before a hurricane hits now, isn't it? But haven't we been living in the times that God has a plan and God's plan is working through uh, storms, both physical in life as well as spiritual in life. And there's been a lot of things going on around us, a lot of opportunities, as Miss Kay said this morning, to show people Jesus Christ, to be the love of Jesus Christ in people's lives. And there'll be a lot of lives that are changed for eternity because of the love that God's people has for God and has for those that He tells us to go love. And so an awesome song this morning. Thank you, Miss Kay, for that. So this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to Acts chapter 1. Stand with me in the reading of God's Word, the honor of the reading of God's Word this morning. And we're going to, uh, we'll just start in verse 15. We'll read the whole passage that we started and try to finish up this morning. So the 15th verse of the uh, first chapter of Acts reads like this. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. All together, the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and attained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, One of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lots fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Father, this morning we have worshipped you through our fellowship, through our singing, Father, through our time together. Now as we come to you to worship through your word, I ask this of you, that you calm our hearts, you focus our attention only on you. And that, Father, this morning you make very little of me, and very much of you, that you may be glorified in this place. And this we ask in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. Let me catch you up to steam, so you know where we were as we had preached through the first point and a half of this actual message. As we look at God's plan, there were three things that we saw in this. There were three things that we saw. The very first thing was God's people. It uh, talked about God's people in this place. If you actually notice, if you still have your Bibles open, in the verses ahead of the where we read back in verses uh, 13 and 14, it actually ran through and it gave some specific names. Some some specific names that were gathered in the upper room. If you read through those names and you notice. Some of them are combined together. It says uh, the women and the mother of Mary, Jesus, and as as brothers. Uh, It it gives a a kind of a picture of those who had gathered there. It, It was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of about 20 people as it ends verse number 14. It doesn't give a whole bunch of names. But then as it starts in verse 20, you'll notice it says that he stood and he preached together or preached to the ones that were gathered all together there, and they numbered about 120 And we know that is because those guys and gals that were gathered in that place were excited about what Jesus had said, excited about seeing Jesus risen from the dead, excited about the fact that there was this promised Holy Spirit that was coming. And even though they'd been in the upper room together, they weren't locked in this room, as is sometimes said. They went about their daily business also. And it was in those times of going about their daily business, I'm sure they were telling others about this Jesus. Even in this time of turmoil for them, their numbers grew. Their numbers grew to about 120. So we, we talked about that the other week. We also talked about the fact that out of those 120, the most unlikely subject became the leader. That was this fellow named Peter. The one with the foot and mouth disease, the, the mouth-shaped foot. Every time Jesus would say something, it was Peter who would blurt out and say something that sometimes made him seem a little ridiculous, didn't it? It was this Peter that we know that was chosen by the seashore because he was a fisherman. And Jesus come by and said, drop your net and follow me later made him a fisher of men. It was this Peter that drew his sword and cut off the ear of the priest, the priest to serve it when they came to take Jesus. It was this Peter that had, when Jesus had announced that he was going to leave them, that he would die, Peter said, over my dead body is basically what he said. He said, these other 11, they may run from this and, and run from you, but not me. Not me, I will be here to the death. It's the same Peter that Jesus looked at and said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. It's the same Peter that I think as Jesus was taken from Caiaphas' house and across the courtyard, I think Jesus probably looked his way and looked into his eyes. And that's when Peter heard the rooster crow. It's when Peter understood, that what Jesus had said had come true. Peter was one of those that had deserted Jesus at the end. He really was. Peter was one that was always sticking his neck out, (laughs) being brash and bold. But yet, when the 120 had gathered in that upper room, it was Peter who came to the forefront and was chosen by God, apparently, to be the leader of this bunch. It was he that had stood and, and proclaimed to them, if you remember from our discussions the other week, proclaimed to them the second thing that we saw in this passage and that there was God had a plan. So we saw that there was God's people and then there was God's plan. To the disciples, I'm sure this time was a little difficult for them because once again, this Jesus that had been their leader who had died and left them once and risen from the dead now had left them again and they were alone in the upper room and And Peter had come to be the, the leader of this group now And as they were gathered in this upper room. And Peter stands and reminds them about the fact that God does in fact have a plan. We need to be reminded of that sometimes, especially when there's difficulties in life, like we've just been through physically. Especially when there's difficulties in life and and spiritually, and there's difficulties in life in our marriages. Or we we've lost a loved one, like just recently happened in our church family. Uh, just as things go on in our life, sometimes we need to be reminded God has a plan. None of those things caught him by surprise. He didn't wake up one morning and realize Hurricane Florence is rushing ashore in the United States. That just didn't happen. He didn't wake up one morning and realize that one of us has a sickness that's going to drag out for months and had to go through doctor's appointments and things like that. He didn't just wake up one morning to realize that one of our loved ones had passed away. God has a plan in all things. Do we always know what that plan is? Absolutely not. We're not God. What God calls us to be is faithful. Faithful to the fact that He is God. And that the plan is perfect, even if it causes us a little pain. Because, let's face it, if we're one of His, how much pain did we put Him in to become one of His? Let's, Let's face it. If the plan that God has, how much pain did we cause Him? You know, so sometimes it's a little difficult it's a little difficult in, in God's plan. And we noticed there that, that as uh, Peter got up and he, he started talking to them, he was telling them, hey, hey there, there is this, this plan. There's, there's this plan. He stood in their midst and reminded them of it. As a matter of fact, it even went back in verse 20, if you remember, and he pulled a couple of scriptures from Old Testament to remind them. He pulled that scripture, let, uh, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it. And then he pulled this scripture that says, let another take his office. What was he speaking to? He was speaking to the fact that there had been 12 and at the crucial moment in Jesus' life, as he was talking about this death, one of the 12 had stepped out and betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. He had come in the garden and kissed him on the cheeks so that those that were following with swords and spears and lanterns would know who it was that they were to take to the cross and kill. You can only imagine what the other 11 thought. I mean, they had been there with Judas the whole time. They never suspected... My goodness, they gave him the money box. They never suspected he would be the betrayer. Remember as they sat around the table. As they sat around the table for the last time for supper with Jesus. As Jesus sat there, he said, there will be one of you who will betray me. Remember, none of them turned and said, it must be Judas. You know what they all said? Lord, it's I. They knew like we should realize We're all capable. We're all capable. It was Jesus who gave in. So there was this this plan to have these twelve, but suddenly one had gone away. Peter stands up in the midst of them and reminds them from Psalm 69.25 and from Psalm 109.8, I believe it is, that, that this plan was written about long ago this plan that there would be another uh, who would take his office this plan that there would be this desolate place this plan had been prophesied in the old testament and was now being fulfilled in their midst he said there's this plan this this judas this judas stepping out and and betraying our lord and our savior that that wasn't a surprise it was in the plan if you remember we also talked about a couple of weeks ago, that this, there's a significance about there being this 12. There's a significance about there being 12. The the question arises, as we read scripture sometimes, especially a passage like this, Jesus had handpicked 12, 12 to be his followers, to be the ones who went with him. And now there was only 11. Does that mean that there was a failure in the plan? Well, absolutely not. It was not. We see, as we talked about it, uh, this, this whole scheme of 12, this whole theme of 12 that goes through all of Scripture. We went back to Genesis, if you remember. And we looked at Jacob, Israel, uh, with the 12 sons. How at the end of, of his life, he pulled together his 12 sons, and he blessed them and said, you are the 12 sons heads of the tribes. We took that uh, passage as we talked about the fact that, that there were these sons, there was these 12 tribes. How did that connect to us in the world today? We took it over to Revelation, if you remember, over to Revelation chapter 21 verses 9 through 13. And we talked about the fact that scripture says that the great city that we all want to go to, the city of heaven, the city of heaven has these foundations for the walls and there's 12 foundations, and on the foundations of that city are written the names of the apostles. Well, if there's 12 foundations and one is betrayed him, are we going to see the name of Judas on one of those? <laughs> Absolutely not, because God had a plan. There will be 12 names, and one of those, I assume, it's going to be Matthias in this case, as we'll see in a few minutes. But there's this theme, there's this plan that's that's being processed, and even though there seems like there's a hiccup in the middle with this Judas character, We find out it's in God's plan. It is in God's plan. I think we started to talk about last week Psalm 55. If you'll just flip over to Psalm 55. We'll hit the ground running very quickly there and finish this message out. So Psalm 55. Psalm 55 is giving us a picture into this man's life named David. Verses 12. Verse 12 says this, 12 through 15. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance, who took, we took sweet counsel together, and, and we walked to the house of God in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. This is a contemplation of David about his life. You know the story. He had many that had. Come his way of betrayed him, but there was one in particular he was thinking about here that he was thinking about this betrayal in his life. And if you know anything about David from the Old Testament, he is a foreshadowing of what Christ was to be when he came in the New Testament. He was a foreshadowing of that. He painted a picture of that. You could look at David's life and the things that went on in David's life and see a picture being painted of this Jesus that was to come. As a matter of fact, Scripture says that David is a man after God's own heart, even with all the things that happened in his life and all the Wrong decisions he made. And here in the life of David, as he's penning this, you can see the picture in Jesus' life. One who was close to him, one that he had spent time with, one who had ministered next to him, who had seen him raise the dead, one, one who had walked with him, eat with him, slept in his presence, heard him pray, had turned his back on Jesus and betrayed him. Jesus himself had been sold for 30 pieces, the, the price of a slave. The price of a slave. Interesting enough, he was sold to the religious leaders. Matter of fact, after he sold him, he felt guilty about it, if you remember. And he went back and said, I feel so guilty about this. I give you the money back. And they said, we can't take it. So he threw it at their feet. Do you realize what they did with it? Here's the hypocrisy in the whole matter. They said, we can't put this money in the treasury for its blood money. They were willing to pay for the death of Jesus. But they even knew it was wrong. They even knew it was wrong. They took that money and they purchased a field, as we read in Acts, a field where Judas had gone so distraught to kill himself and even botched the hanging, apparently, and fell amongst the rocks and burst open, as the Bible tells us. It's a field of blood. It's a potter's field, a field that that was used then to bury people. So there was this plan. There was this plan, and within the plan, it tells us in verse 15 of Psalms that within this plan, there was a person, Judas, who made a decision against God that sealed his fate forever, forever. His fate became what you read in the 15th verse of the 55th chapter of Psalms when it says, let death seize them, let them go down alive into hell, for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Judas had been in the presence of the greatest preacher ever. He had been in the presence of the greatest healer ever. He had been in the presence of the most compassionate person ever. And yet his heart was never turned towards Jesus as being the Lord and Savior of his life. There's a message in that to us. You can spend all the time you want in his presence, reading, asking for his help in times of storm, coming to church and participating, But if there's never a time in your life that you have said, I'm a sinner (laughs) in desperate need of a Savior, and there's only one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. If there's never been a time in your life that you've been honest with God and with yourself and said, I can't do this on my own. There is no way into heaven except through Jesus Christ. He is the only door, the only way, the only light, the only chance that I have. If there's never been a time that you've recognized You personally need a Savior. Your mom, your grandmom, the pastor, your Sunday school teacher can't do it for you. There's never been a time that you've realized that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've yielded to that in your life, that you've asked forgiveness of your sin and said, Jesus, I accept you as both my Savior and the Lord of my life. If there's never been that time in your life, Scripture tells me one thing I know for sure about you. You will spend eternity in a place called hell. There's an eternity that awaits. Without Jesus, it is a place called hell. With Jesus, it is a place called heaven. It is a place called heaven. If you've not made that decision, you set your goal, you choose your place. And it's a place called hell. But there's this plan. There's this grand scheme, this grand plan that's going on. That God's working. And one of those within that, within the 12, had made his decision. He chose hell. He chose the hell over Jesus. He sat in the very presence of Jesus. And he chose a place called hell. Why? Because he loved himself more than he loved Jesus. For 30 pieces of silver. For 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave he was willing to sell our Lord and Savior to a cross because he loved himself. See, it was intended by God from eternity past that Jesus would be betrayed. It was intended by God from eternity past that there would be one that would sell him out. You can go back and read the Old Testament Scriptures and see it. I find it interesting that none of those in the group noticed anything odd about Judas They didn't notice that he would do that sort of thing. Yet within God's plan, that was the one. That was the one that would do that. It was through the act of Judas that Jesus was handed over to the officials and taken to the cross to die a cruel death that you and I might have salvation through the blood that flowed from this body on that cross that night. The plan that Jesus would come to die a sinless death on a cross to pay the price for our sins that we might have eternal life, that's God's overarching plan. God's overarching plan, and all that happens, all that happens from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future is for one thing, that you might have the opportunity to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and spend all of your eternity future with Him in a place called heaven. All of God's plans. So there's God's people, there is God's plan, and very quickly there's God's providence in all things. We see that as he starts talking to them. In verse 15, it says that he stood up and he, he preached in their midst and he told them the story. He told them, he told them about the providence of God, even in Judas and the things going on in Judas. And he works down to this 21st verse as, as we read through. In the 21st verse, he makes this statement. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that uh, when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection resurrection. Peter makes this this statement in the middle. He says, okay, uh, there's 120 of us gathered together. Out of the original 12, one is left. He he gives scripture to back up the fact, you know, this was providence. This was God in control. This was God's plan that he left. But, But guys, that's not the end of the plan. There's another plan. There must be one here among us that should fill the gap. He gives a couple of priorities, a couple of requirements of this. The very first requirement that we see, he had to participate in the ministry. Is said he had to be a part of the ministry. It wasn't just going to go outside and pull somebody in from nowhere. It was a person that had been part of them. Maybe they he had been there and helped feed the 5,000. Maybe he had had uh, seen Jesus whenever he, he healed people. Maybe he had brought people to Jesus. For, maybe he was one of the guys on the four corners of the mat who took off the roof and lowered the guy down to Jesus' feet. I don't know what part the guy played, but he was somewhere in the ministry of Jesus it says that that's a requirement he be in a ministry i found it interesting I didn't even think about this matt but we're preaching this message this morning on the day that you just reached out and said we've got a guy who's been with us that we know has been a part of the ministry we we'll want to be the part of, of the deacon body how interesting that god ties these messages together in this particular order but anyhow there was this thing so, so maybe he had been a part of that so one of the requirements was this guy had to know about jesus ministry that, that was one of the requirements. There was also a second requirement in the 22nd verse at the, the very end. It says he must he must have been a witness of his resurrection. He must have been a witness of the resurrection. They had to see and they had to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. The, the resurrection is, is the key to a proper understanding of of what Christian faith is. You see, people in our world today, they have many gods. They have Buddha, they have Muhammad, the new age has everybody who's a god. You have this this Brahma or many gods within the the Hindu world. And and then you also have this, uh, the great I am, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all tied together in the one. You have these many gods when you look at world religions. What these religions have in common is they all have something that's sort of this, this higher power, so to speak. They believe there is someone or there is something that kind of sets the rules. There's something that lays out the path. There's something that gives this plan. Sometimes it's, it's Muhammad or Buddha. For the new age, it's each person sets their own. But there's somebody that sets out this particular path. But there is, <laughs> there's one thing they differ in. There's one thing they differ in that is a large differentiation between all of these religions. There, there's only one religion. There's only one belief that has a God that they believed in. <laughs> That would leave his eternity and come to earth to be a part of the plan. As a matter of fact, there's only one of these world religions that the leader would sacrifice himself to be the plan. See, and we all know that that religion, that that belief system is called Christianity, which we're a part of. And, and the proper understanding of Christianity revolves around what Jesus did on a cross for you. He came and he lived a sinless life as an example. He was betrayed into the hands of, a, of the Jewish leaders by one that he loved. He was beaten and he was hung up on a cross and he died, it tells us in the word, so that your sins may be forgiven. He was buried in a tomb that three days later, when they went up to the tomb, the stone was rolled away and they they found the slab to be empty. See, as of the other religions of the world, they can go to the grave of their leader and see their bones. See, you can go up to the grave of Buddha. You could see Muhammad. You could see the grave of all those that have been in a new age religion and thought they were their own gods. But there is only one religion. There is only one religion, one belief system that, that there is no grave for the god. There is no grave. The only thing there is is an empty tomb. It's not a grave because there's not a body in it. There's only one belief system. There's only one faith that knows that we have a living Savior. And that's Christianity. That is named after the one who is alive, Christ. See, it's important that man uh, who filled Judah's spot believed in the resurrection of from the dead of this Jesus Christ. It was important because that is the hinge point of Christianity. That's what differentiates us. That's what makes what we believe in true. That is the element of the Christian faith that makes all the difference. All the difference in the world. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that proves that what he did on the cross... Paid for your sins. It's the proof that God accepted the death on the cross, the penalty that he paid to pay your debt and my debt on the cross. Without the resurrection, there is no living Savior. Without a living Savior, we worship a dead God. And if we worship a dead God who does not live, then we have absolutely no hope for eternal life. None. Zero but because Christ has risen from the dead to life eternal in the presence of the Almighty God, where he says at this moment he is sitting in the presence of the Almighty God. We know that one day, one day, we will rise from the dead to be in his presence for all of eternity. We see so many people today with no hope. Guess what? They need Jesus, and if they have Jesus, they have hope. No matter the storms that blow through, no matter the roofs that disappear, no matter the water that rises, Jesus Christ is alive and lives in you and me. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. You want hope in the world? There's your hope. Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for your sins, was buried in a tomb and rose three days later, said, I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to get you. And where I'm at, you're going to be for all of eternity. It's imperative. It was imperative then that the man who was appointed to fill the vacancy believed in this risen Savior, that that was his message. And it tells us there are only two men. There was this Joseph and there was this Matthias, it says. Joseph and Matthias. But how did they decide? Very quickly. They they began in verses 24 and 25, if you notice it. They began where we should begin in all things that we do. All things that we do as a church. All things that we do in our personal life. All things that we do for the glory of God should begin in this spot. If you'll notice what they did in verses 24 25 it says and they prayed let me ask you a question why is it when you ask people hey you're going through this problem in your life how you handle this we've done everything we know to do how about you just pray for us why don't you start there the most powerful thing that exists is god why don't you start with talking to him instead of waiting till you've tried everything else you can do and falling back on prayer is the last thing. Notice what they did. There was a spot to be filled, and the first thing they did is 120. They gathered together, and you know what they said? God, what would you have us do? What would you have us do? It says, and they prayed, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you've chosen. They didn't go. They didn't go to God and say, Let me give you the list of credentials. Let me tell you, God, who we think are best. Let me tell you what all Joseph is, or Matthias is doing. Let me tell you about his. They went and said, God, you know all hearts. she give you a clue as to what's the most important thing in the face of God. It's what's in your heart. It's what's in your heart. They went before the Almighty God and said, God, you know their hearts. You know their hearts. You know, the one that has the heart to do what it is that we do, that that has the heart that is closest to you, the the heart that is set up that you've designed to be the 12th man on the team. God, you know the heart. Tell us. Tell us how we might know. So they went through and they prayed. And then it tells us in verse 26, we see this very odd thing. It says after they prayed, after they spent time in God's presence, it says they cast lots cast lots how many of you guys during the hurricane you didn't have anything else to do so you got your lots out and went to casting them anybody i don't even know what a casting lot is The only lots i know are like the lot the house is on i'm not very good at casting those they're a little on the heavy side but there's it says they cast these lots it's funny i looked through some of the commentaries strangest thing you've ever seen you're just spend a day doing it. it's absolutely hilarious how they try to define all this you know i did find an answer to this it's very simple. We don't have time to look at it. Go home and read one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I'm sure it will become one of yours, this book called Leviticus. <laughs> I mean, you guys love Leviticus. Go back and read Leviticus 16 this afternoon while you have absolutely nothing to do. It'll help you with your sleep patterns and all those things as you read it. Leviticus is a is one of those strange, difficult books to understand. But just, just read through Leviticus 16. Let me give you the rundown real fast. There's this guy named Aaron. There's this guy named Aaron that's kind of head over all this these people, over their worship. Uh, he's kind of in charge of taking care of... of of what I do, so to speak, sort of like this, and and what it tells us in Leviticus 16 is that is that God had told him, okay, Aaron, as it comes time for this Day of Atonement, as it comes time for that one day a year that you're going to atone for the sacrifice of the sins of all the people of Israel, first start off by sacrificing this bull for yourself that you may be clean. It's a good example for pastors that before we step in the pulpit and tell you you should be forgiven of your sins, we should have been on our knees first, getting forgiveness of our sins. If more pastors did that, there'd be more power from the pulpit. But that's a story for another time. That's my problem. Here's your problem. It says that, that you have sins in your life. Aaron starts off sacrificing a bull. The bull's for the cleansing of his sins. Then he chooses two goats. <laughs> this is the interesting thing. He chooses two goats. He takes these two goats and and he has to sacrifice them, these two goats. One is going to be a sacrifice. One is going to be a scapegoat. It's going to be sent out into the wilderness with the sins of the people on it, showing that the sins have been forgiven and cast away. It's just kind of this picture. It's a long story. We'll get into it later, but Leviticus uh, 16, 8, and 10 says this, Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, and offer it as a sin offering. So in other words, there was going to be an offering of one. One would die, his blood would be spilled as a sin offering. But the other goat on which uh, the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. In other words, there would be one that would be slaughtered, his blood would be spilled to wash away the sins. The other, as a ceremonial example, would the sins would be cast upon this goat, so to speak, and it would be sent off into the wilderness. This was done on the Day of Atonement. So we see this casting of lots as a choice. (laughs) This was the preferred method, apparently, in the Old Testament for casting lots. I don't see a board game of it today. I don't see any instruction on what it means, but I do know this. They're using this method in the New Testament. And there's a reason they're using it the te- in the New Testament here. It raises a question as to why. also raises the question, are we still supposed to do it today? There's a real simple reason. This is the last time we see the casting of lots in the New Testament ever. Because what's going to happen in just a few days? God's promised that this Holy Spirit's going to come to indwell. The casting of lots is used as a discernment for what God would have them do in the choosing Guess who becomes the discerning one in just a few days? The Holy Spirit that's coming to indwell them. There's no more need to cast lights. For the Holy Spirit's going to come to indwell them just like he does us whenever we accept him as our Lord and Savior. In just a few days, those are going uh, that is going to happen in their midst. By the casting of lights in their day, they determined what would happen by the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life today, we can determine that which God would have us do in each and every situation. Whether it's a church situation, whether it's a personal situation, whether it's job related, whether it's uh, marital related, whatever it may be, the Holy Spirit is there to guide us in that decision. So they cast lots. It was determined that Matthias would be the man, that he would be the man. He was chosen to be the 12th disciple. He would carry the church forward along with the other 11. What they understood and what we need to understand today is that God has a plan and that is providential over the fulfillment of that plan. He is in complete control. There's not a thing that comes our way that catches him by surprise. There is nothing that can override his plan. He will use any means necessary to accomplish that which he desires within his will to accomplish. If we begin in prayer, prayer is not to get God to change to the way we want to do things. It is to get our will to line up with God's will so that he could use us to accomplish that which is the greatest for his glory. Then the scripture that we love to quote from from, uh, the Bible that says, all things work for our good becomes true. Because our will then is the same as God's will and God only does that which is best for him. So if you're in the middle of his will... It'll be best for you. Even if it looks like a hurricane, even if it looks like a marriage problem, even if it looks like the death of a family member, if it's in God's plan, it's perfect. That is tough to swallow. But you know what I know? God loves you and me so much that he killed his only begotten son on the cross for my sins. Why would he now punish me? It's been taken care of. If a little difficulty comes my way in life, so be it. I'm not hanging on a cross, naked, suffocating to death, dying. He went through that for me. What is a little pain in my life? The only question in the equation of the plan that God has is, is you are you and I going to yield to that plan? Are we going to be a part? Or are we going to be a Judas? That's the choice. Are you going to be one of the 11? Or are you going to be a Judas? There is nobody else. That's where the rubber meets the road. Are we going to be active participants in what he wants to do? Are we going to do his will? Or are we going to do ours? Are we going to sell his plan out for 30 pieces of silver? We're going to spend time on the couch watching TV instead of out loving on people like God told us to do. We're going to keep everything we get inside of our own house in case we need it for storms later. find it funny that it was money that got Judas to betray Jesus. Just thought of this. Money is probably the biggest hang-up in Christians' lives today. They're so worried that there's not going to be enough for the end of the day. Break the news to you. My God's not broke. My God's not broke. God will fund that which he calls you to do. The church needs to be in fervent prayer. Fervent prayer that we will do as a church body that which God has called us to do. That we will know his will. We know definitely within his will that it's his will that we be saved. For it says that the Bible tells us God desires that all be saved. We, we know that he, he wants that gospel message to go out because Jesus himself instructed them and us to take it to the uttermost ends of the world. We know his will for the church is to be his representation. That's why we're the bride of Christ. We are supposed to represent Christ like a bride represents her husband and a husband represents the bride. We're in this together. We're supposed to be represented. So the question this morning is this. Are you seeking God's will in your life? Maybe for someone this morning, is to come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's one thing that I hope is impressed upon your heart if you sit in this place this morning and you don't know for sure that if you were to die tonight, that your eyes would open to look at a Savior instead of open to look at the devil. If you don't know that you would wake up at a place called heaven instead of a place called hell, the one thing this morning, if you don't Know beyond a shadow of a doubt that heaven is your eternal home, there is one thing that you must decide this morning. It's not how you can help the neighbors in the flood. It's not how you can give stuff. None of that matters if you spend eternity in hell. There's one thing you need to decide this morning. Will Jesus be your Savior and Lord or will he not? Because without that, it doesn't matter how many people you help. You need to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You need So so maybe that's one of the decisions this morning. Maybe it's to serve him because he is your Lord and Savior. And there are opportunities every Saturday morning for a while. We will be gathering in this place to go out into this community and help those that are hurting. And there is something everybody can do. There is something everybody can do to help us with that. There will be an opportunity to serve. But more importantly, there will be an opportunity to sit, as my wife had an opportunity to do yesterday, next to a lady who I'm not sure has the same beliefs that we have. But sit and share with her. Share with her for a couple of hours. Just love on her in her life. Sitting in a chair that any of you can do. And loving on her. Telling her about Jesus. You have those opportunities. Maybe it's to be as hands and feet to the world. Whatever it is this morning. My question is, will you yield? Will you yield to the will of God in your life? Will you be one of the eleven? Or will you be Judas? It's really easy. It's really easy. What will it be in your life this morning? Pray with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the conviction of your word in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Lord and our Savior. And this morning I pray this, if there be one here that does not know him as Lord and Savior this morning, Father, that the burden of that will fall so heavy upon their hearts that they won't leave this place until they have taken care of that, that you will draw them down to the front this morning, Father, that I may have the opportunity to share with them personally about what it means to be one of your children. Then for those, Father, who know your Son Jesus as their Lord and Savior, may they be convicted this morning to... Go out and do that, what you've called them to do. Number one, to, to be Christ in the world and to share Jesus with every person they meet. But number two, to love their neighbor as their self. Because when asked the greatest commandment, your son said to love God with everything that you are and your neighbor as yourself. Father, I think the litmus test for how much I love you is how much I love my neighbor. This morning, I pray that conviction falls on those sitting in these pews. If they really love you, they'll do what you commanded. So this morning, you work as only you can in our hearts to draw us to you. and Let us respond as we sing this morning, Father, to your call, yielding our lives to be a living example of your Son, Jesus Christ, in this world. And we do it in his precious name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth.